I think you'd agree with me if I said men are pretty good at making excuses. And when I say men, I mean mankind in general, men and women both. So we're good excuse makers, but there's another way you might say we're pretty bad about excuses when you consider the excuses that are actually offered. Because most excuses are usually a, a pretty sorry attempt to explain away something that you failed to do that you should have done. I came across a list of some excuses the other day. Some of them were pretty humorous. Uh, several of them involved why people didn't show up for work when they were supposed to. One fellow said he didn't show up for work because a chicken had attacked his mother. I don't know about that. Uh, maybe Arthur or Jacob, or some of you all who keep chickens, might sympathize with that, but that doesn't sound very good. Another guy said that he didn't come to work because he had to mow the lawn to avoid a lawsuit from the Homeowners Association. Well, some of us might sympathize with that, but again, that'd be a pretty sorry excuse for not showing up for work. Another fellow said he didn't come to work because his finger was stuck in a bowling ball. I don't know. What do you think? You've all heard the excuse, of course, about the, the student who didn't have his homework assignment and the excuse offered was the dog ate my assignment. You've heard that one. That's a famous one, right? Here's, here's one. Here's a student without homework excuse that tops that one. This student said, I was in the lunchroom and another student started criticizing you, the teacher, and I just couldn't let that go without letting him know he was wrong. I searched through my backpack to find something to throw at him, and all I could find was today's homework assignment. So I let him have it. That's a, that's a classic, wouldn't you agree? And so, excuses. What about excuses? We're quick to offer them whenever we realize that we haven't done what we know we're supposed to do. I want to ask you a question. Do you think that there will be any excuse-making on Judgment Day? i got to believe that there will, right? Because there are going to be a lot of people on Judgment Day who realize that they're not ready. They realize that they haven't done what they were supposed to do, what was expected of them. And so, yes, there will be a lot of excuse-making on Judgment Day. Sadly, we can predict what a lot of those excuses will likely be, and we know that they won't work. And we want to talk about some of those in our lesson this morning. Before we get into our study, let me stop here just for a minute to add to the words of welcome that Lee has already expressed. We're glad that you're here today. What a beautiful day we have to come together on this Lord's Day to worship God. Uh, just beautiful weather, uh, just a gorgeous time of year, and we're certainly blessed to be able to be together. As we often pray, we're thankful that we can come together without fear of interference. Nobody's trying to prevent us, no no uh, uh, opposition to what we do. We're free to gather together to worship God, and it is a great blessing. We're glad that you're here this morning. We're glad that you've chosen to be a part of this today. We have visitors, and we're grateful for your presence, and we hope you'll come back every time you have a chance, and we're always open to your questions. Let's talk about some excuses that won't work on Judgment Day. One of the excuses I think that's sure to come up is that someone will say, I didn't know enough. I didn't know enough. Well, I think it is true that there are a lot of people who don't know much of anything at all about God or His will, but that's actually a self-indictment if you stop to think about it. I didn't know enough. What that really means is that I didn't apply myself and I didn't try to learn because the information is out there. It's accessible. And it's our job to access that information, learn it, and obey it. In Ephesians chapter 3, 
beginning verse 3, Paul said, By revelation God made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in few words, whereby when ye read, ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. We've often talked about this system that Paul described there. Paul was inspired, that is, God through the Holy Spirit gave Paul the information. He wrote it down. We can pick it up and read it, and we can know what God wants us to know. In fact, in chapter 5 of Ephesians, verse 17, we're actually commanded to know. Wherefore, be not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. And so that's our job. We're expected to apply ourselves and learn. To the person who would offer the excuse in Judgment Day, I didn't know enough. That's the basic equivalent of going, uh, of being stopped perhaps for a traffic violation. Maybe you were speeding down the highway and a police officer pulls you over and, and uh, he says, uh, do you happen to know what the speed limit is along here? And you say, no, I didn't know. I didn't know. He says, well, you were doing 70 and a 50. Well, I didn't know. I'm sorry. I didn't know that the speed limit along here was 50. Any guesses as to how successful that will be with the police officer? Won't work, will it? Uh, we've often said ignorance of the law is no excuse, right? And that's certainly true with the law of God. He's made His information available to us. He's told us what He wants us to do. We won't be able to argue that we didn't know. Someone might offer the excuse, well, I really thought that one church was as good as any other. Certainly, there's been a big selling job done on this notion. Uh, over the last many decades, this has become a very popular idea. Most people have accepted that it is so, that one church is as good as another. Now, if you stop to think about that, this is truly an admission of gullibility. Because even a casual investigation of the Word of God will prove otherwise, that one church is not as good as another. And so if you hope to go to Judgment Day and say, well, God, I... I just, I just figured that one church was as good as another. What you'll basically be saying to God is, I didn't carefully look at your word. I didn't study it. I didn't think about it. And I, and I never really thought about things that are really important. Because if you did, if you spend any time at all, even casually considering the truths of the scripture, you'd be convinced that one church is not as good as another. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, you know it well. Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Notice, Jesus was going to build my church. He wasn't going to build lots of different churches. He wasn't going to be build hundreds or thousands of different churches. He intended to build just one. We all, I think, should be very familiar with the argument from the book of Ephesians. In chapter 1, verse 22, beginning, God hath put all things under Jesus' feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, Notice the church is his body. Then in chapter 4 of the same epistle, there is one body and one spirit, even as you're called in one hope of your calling. Jesus is the head of the church, which is his body, and there's just one body. If there's just one body, there's obviously just one church. One church is not as good as another. We've studied that many times before. A lot of people will try to use that excuse, I think, in judgment. It's not going to work. Someone else says, well, you know, I, I heard about that one church. I, I heard about some of those people who were members of the Church of Christ and how they talked about that there's only one true church of, of our Lord Jesus Christ. But i got to tell you, that was, I didn't go for that because it was such an unpopular thing. Whenever that came up, 
whenever it came up that there was just one church, people really got mad about that. And it was a very unpopular notion. And, and I didn't really want to associate with that because it was so unpopular. Well, you think that will work? You think it will work that you say, I didn't do the right thing because I didn't want to join an unpopular movement? Well, consider all the faithful people of God throughout all the centuries. Uh, you, do you think, based upon what you know of the Scriptures and about God's faithful people through all the centuries, do you think that you could ever truly do God's will and remain popular? No one else has ever done that, of course. It's never been popular to do the true will of our Lord. In that reading that Monty read for us earlier from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning verse 26, you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen. God told us not to expect that His that, that following Him would be popular, that His way would be uh, widely accepted. He never told us that. In fact, He told us to expect just the opposite. So anyone who thinks they might offer the excuse, the church was just real unpopular and I didn't want to be a part of that, that won't work. Surely that won't work. Someone else might say, well, I, I thought sincerity would be enough. Just if, if I was deeply sincere in serving God, I figured that he wouldn't care about the details or the particulars. I just thought being sincere would be enough. Really? You think that will work in, on the judgment day? That doesn't work with anything, does it? For instance, I go to this doctor, and he misdiagnoses things all the time. I mean, he gets it wrong more than he gets it right. But I'll tell you, he's a, he's a great guy. He, he just seems so sincere. When he gives those diagnoses, they're wrong. Most of the time they're wrong. But man, he's just such a sincere fellow. Just a really good person. You think that'll work? You're going to keep going to that doctor just because he's sincere? I'm not going, are you? I wouldn't even take my car to a mechanic. You know, this mechanic, he, he never gets it right. He's always fixing something that isn't broken and not fixing what is broken. And he charges me three prices. But I'm going to tell you. He's a real sincere guy. I'm not going to that mechanic, are you? Well, why would we think then that when it comes to the most important things of all, when it comes to our eternal salvation, that we could just say sincerity will be enough? We know that it won't. The Apostle Paul, perhaps, is the greatest example of a sincere man who was dead wrong. In Galatians chapter 1, beginning verse 13, he says, "...ye have heard of my conversation, or manner of life, in time past, in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it, and profited in the Jews' religion above many my equals in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers." Do you think Paul was sincere while he was in the process of persecuting Christians? Of course he was. He absolutely was. He says he was exceedingly zealous of the traditions of the fathers, and yet he was dead wrong. If sincerity, I would, I would just put it to you simply this way. If sincerity is enough, Paul was okay while he was persecuting Christians, right? Why not? Sincerity is not enough. We know that that simply won't work as an excuse. Someone go to the judgment day and say, well, I got to tell you, I just trusted 
what my preacher told me. I, I just trusted that what he was saying was true. I'm sure that a lot of people are going to make that excuse, but think how foolish that excuse would be. Maybe to draw a parallel, think about it this way. Would you trust your most valuable possession to somebody else without checking on it? Let's say, for instance, that you have a million dollars. You've got a million dollars in your, and it's yours, it's your possession. Would you hand that over to someone and never question them about what they're doing with it? Never question them about where it is or what's happening? Never even wonder whether it was being safely guarded or not? Well, of course not. I wouldn't. If I ever had a million dollars, I'm certainly not going to trust it to someone else without checking to make sure that everything is safe and sound. Well, here's the eternal soul, our most precious possession. You'll never come into possession if you had a million dollars or way more. Nothing that you'll ever come to possession of could compare in value to your soul. And yet so many people are just trusting that to others without ever considering whether they're telling them the truth or whether they're doing the right thing. It's not enough to just trust the preacher. We need to be like the people who were in the uh, city of Berea, or uh, yes, in Berea, in Acts 17, verse 11. The Bereans, it says, these Bereans were more noble than those in Thessalonica and that they received the word with all readiness of mind, notice, and searched the Scriptures daily whether those things were so. You know who the preacher was on that occasion? It was the Apostle Paul. But they didn't even take his word for it. They checked it out to make sure he was telling them the truth. And that's what we've got to do. This excuse that I just did what the preacher said and I never really thought otherwise, certainly that is never going to work. Someone else says, well... I just didn't think I was good enough to be a Christian. I just didn't think I was good enough to be saved. Well, the answer to that, of course, is you're right. You're not good enough. None of us are good enough. No one is good enough on their own to be saved. That's what salvation is all about. That's what the plan of salvation that God has provided for us through His Son, Jesus Christ, that's what it's all about. Because none of us are good enough to be saved on our own. But God has made salvation available to all who will come to Him through Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning verse 9, Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves of mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Notice, and such were some of you. So among these Corinthians, they were involved in all those kinds of sins that are mentioned there. Fornication, idolatry, adulterers, homosexuality, stealing, drunkards, all of it. Were they good enough to be saved? No. Not on their own they weren't. But by the grace of God through His Son, Jesus Christ, and the plan of salvation He's made available to all, even all sinners. Look at the list. You're not good enough? They weren't good enough either. Such were some of you, but ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And so, uh, don't expect that that's going to be a workable excuse on the day of judgment to say, well, I just didn't feel I was good enough to be saved. On your own, you're not, but God has made salvation available to everyone. And you're one of those everyones 
don't think this excuse will work. How about the person who says, I just didn't think that I could make it. I knew about being a Christian, and I'd studied the Scriptures, and I knew what was involved, but I just didn't think I could make it. I didn't really didn't think there was any reason to start, because I didn't think I could finish. No, you're starting something you can't finish. I just didn't think that I could make it. What about that? Start to think of all the ramifications and implications of that kind of an idea. I didn't think I could make it. That really argues that God is, is really a mean-spirited, overbearing master. And what he's done is he has put in place this almost, well, it is. It's effectively an impossible requirement. He has put upon us so much that we'll never make it. And what he is hoping for is that we won't make it so that he can crush us. You know, that's what God's like. He's given us such horrible, difficult, impossible assignments in serving Him that He knows we'll never make it. I just didn't think I could make it. God's just hoping He can crush me. Is that what God is like? No, that's not what God is like, obviously. In fact, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, There hath no temptation taken you, such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. Sure, it's hard. Nobody said living faithfully for the Lord is an easy thing, but it's not an impossible thing. God has promised that you can do it. The Apostle Paul said in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Even Paul understood. He couldn't make it on his own, but with the help of God, he could, and we can too. The excuse that you didn't start because you didn't think you could make it won't work either. Someone else says, well, I knew what was expected. I knew what the Lord commanded. But I was afraid that if I did those things, I would offend my family. You know, this is a big problem to a lot of people, and it's certainly something to consider. You know, if, if I make a decision for God's truth, and I go in that direction, in doing that, I'll be saying that people close to me have been wrong religiously. We talked earlier about the one true church and that it's actually a, an unpopular idea. But once you become convinced that that's what the Bible teaches, and that it teaches this particular way of serving God as being the right way, then if you choose to do that, and you've got dear loved ones, family members and friends who don't do that, you, you might think, well, if I go that direction, I'll be saying they're wrong, and I'm afraid that would be an offense to them. I'm afraid I'd hurt their feelings. I, I, I just don't want to make that statement that I think that they're wrong religiously. i got to tell you, that is a problem, and a lot of people have had to deal with those kinds of concerns. But what did Jesus say about that? What did Jesus say about that? In Matthew chapter 10, verse 37, He said, He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Certainly we're to love our family. Mother, father, son, daughter, and others. But we can't let our love for any individual or group of individuals be greater than our love for God when we know what God wants us to do. We can't allow the excuse that if I do that, I'll offend these others. What does that mean? That means I love them more than I love God. I can't let that happen, right? That cannot be 
the way it goes. Don't think that you could go to the judgment day and say, well, God, I didn't do what I should have done because I didn't want to offend my family. Because Jesus already addressed that, didn't he? Another person says, there were too many hypocrites in the church. You know, here's a st- as a statement of fact, I'd be willing to agree with that. There are too many hypocrites in the church. And certainly there are hypocrites in the church. Nobody denies that. Yes, there are hypocrites in the church. But if you're going to let hypocrites keep you from God, then you're making a serious, serious mistake. Someone described it to me once. I thought it was kind of an interesting way to picture it sort of in your mind. Here's God. Here's me. And here's a hypocrite who's keeping me from coming to God. Where's the hypocrite? He's closer to God than I am. If the hypocrite comes between me and God in a way of thinking, you could say the hypocrite's closer to God than I am. Are there hypocrites in the church? Of course there are hypocrites in the church. There always have been and there always will be. But we can't let those hypocrites keep us from doing what God expects us to do. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, it says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body, according to that he had done, whether it be good or bad. Notice, we're each one going to be judged individually. That hypocrite's going to be judged by God. God will take care of the hypocrite if he doesn't repent. He'll pay the price for his hypocrisy. But I, I'll be judged too. And if I've let that hypocrite keep me from doing what I should be doing, it won't be an excuse that will save my soul. Yes, there are hypocrites. Too many, for sure. But don't let those hypocrites serve as an unworkable excuse for you on Judgment Day. Finally, someone says, I just thought there was plenty of time that I could, that I would have enough time. Later on, I could do what needed to be done. You know, this might be, I'm afraid, the most common excuse of all that will be used on Judgment Day. And perhaps there'll be more people lost in that final analysis because of this than anything else. People who knew what they should do but kept postponing what they should do with the idea there was plenty of time left. I have plenty of time. I'll have time enough yet to do what needs to be done. In the parable of the rich, foolish farmer, the Lord said to him, or God said to him, I will say to my soul, this is what the farmer said, I will say to my soul, soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Of thee. And of course, that is the reality. We don't know about time. We can't predict how long we have. We can't say there's plenty of time left. Uh, Judgment could come today. Our own death could come today. There certainly may not be plenty of time left. There may not be much time left at all. And if you're postponing to do what you know you should do, understand that if you die in that undone condition, you will not be able to say, well, Lord, I was going to do the right thing. I thought I had plenty of time to do it. I was going to do it. I planned to get around to it, but I never did. Excuses. We're pretty good at making excuses. But remember, excuses typically don't work at all. Excuses are just a lame attempt to explain away why we didn't do what we should have done when it needed to be done. And there's no more important area than in our spiritual lives. 
do not expect that you'll be able to slip through the judgment by offering any of these kinds of unworkable excuses. There's really only one approach that works. That is, upon learning and knowing the will of God, to humbly submit in obedience. If you're not yet a Christian, we hope you'll make that decision. Hearing His truth, believe it. Repent of your sins. Confess your faith in Jesus and be baptized for the remission of sins. We'd be glad to assist you in your obedience today. We'd be glad to study more with you. If you need more information, just say a word. If you're a Christian already, but you've not been faithful to your Lord, you stand the same threat of judgment and condemnation. And the excuses won't work for you either. If you're a Christian and has not been faithful to your Lord, come back in repentance, confession, and prayer. If we can help, let us know while we stand and sing this song. prepare our minds for that. I'd like to sing, I Gave My Life for Thee, which is song number 340. 340. Please turn to 340. We'll sing this song in preparation. 